All righty. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Tim Greeno. I'm one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek. And uh, if you're newer with us, we want to say welcome to you this morning. Uh, today, it's a little, we're going to have a little bit of a unique start to our time this morning. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Romans today. We actually have quite a bit of ground to cover in Romans chapter 4. Uh, but the reason it's a little bit of a unique start to our time this morning is that today is the Sending Sunday for uh, one of our sisters at the downtown location who's going to be doing overseas missions work as part of a team, a church planting team going to Central Asia. So we're going to be sending out Allison today. We're going to spend some time praying for her together as a body of believers um, as she is making her way over to Central Asia uh, this week. So uh, there's a picture of Allison. You can put up the picture of Allison here. We're going to take a few minutes and and pray for her. Um, but I wanted to mention just a little bit about the team that she is a part of and the work that they're seeking to do. So she's part of a team, many of whom are, uh, the, the team is comprised mostly of folks from our church and most of them from here at our Windsor Heights location. Um, but the team is desiring to see a church planted, a healthy biblical church planted among an unreached group of people or people group in Central Asia. And when we talk about a group of people who is unreached, what I mean is there's a cultural and and, uh, language barrier to the gospel that currently exists. There's a group of people who have a distinct culture, distinct language, who there are no Christians or very few Christians among, essentially no Uh, work being done among them currently by Christians, and oftentimes there's no even Bible translation in the language that they primarily speak. And so as we send out the team to Central Asia to to seek to plant a church among an unreached people group, their kind of aim or their marching orders are to first uh, learn the national language of the country that they are heading to, then start a business in-country as a means to be a blessing to the folks that they're reaching out to, but also as a means to to be in the country that they are in. Third is to learn a second language, which would be the language more specific to the group of people that they're actually trying to reach. Fourth, translate the scriptures into that language, assuming that none currently exists, which is the case with most of the groups of people in our world who do not have Christians among them. Fifth, uh, begin to teach the scriptures and proclaim the gospel through the word of God. Sixth, uh, Lord willing, see believers come to Christ as the gospel is preached. Seventh, gather them into the church. And eighth, raise up elders and hopefully lay a foundation for a healthy multiplying church for uh, decades, even centuries to come, Lord willing. Easy. No, it's a very tall task, okay? Okay. But that is what we send out folks overseas to do, primarily to do church plant work among unreached groups of people, people who currently have uh, no meaningful access to the gospel in their own culture and language. Okay? And so as we send out Allison this morning uh, as part of that team going to Central Asia, I wanted to mention just a couple of things here. One, uh, church planting, it really is, especially overseas church planting, it it is a church-wide effort, okay? It is not the effort of the handful of folks that we're sending over to Central Asia. If we view it that way, uh, we will not serve them well, okay? Church planting is a 
whole church effort. We send a few physically, but there is so much work and support that goes into planting a church, especially halfway around the world amongst a group of people who have a lot of barriers to the gospel, barriers to entry. And so as a church, we're not all going to physically move to Central Asia or halfway around the world to some other place, but we can all pray and we can all give. Okay, these are probably primary ways that most of us can be involved in the church planting work uh, that we are doing through the church. Okay, and we're going to pray here for a few minutes this morning. Uh, but something that we're asking all of our members to do is to pray and to give specifically through something we call the 1040 initiative. Okay, the 1040 initiative. It's a simple uh, platform that we started last year where people can give. every month towards overseas missions work that we're doing here in the church. You also receive prayer points and updates in a quarterly newsletter so that you can just continuously be praying for the work that's happening overseas and know how to pray for them, know what they're going through. And then also, as a bonus, you receive a free T-shirt as part of the 1040 initiative, and so that's pretty nice. Uh, But if you are not yet signed up for the 1040 initiative, maybe you're just hearing about it even for the first time this morning, I want to encourage you, at the very least, go check it out, visit the landing page. You can follow that QR code. I was pretty proud of myself this week for finding out how to do that, Uh, put that bad boy in there. But I would just encourage you, we, we really do want to encourage all of our members to be a part of uh, our, our work overseas. And this is one way, and I would say it's a very important way uh, that you can be involved with us in that. Okay. Now, we're going to take a few minutes and pray for Allison. I know some of you, you know Allison very well. Others uh, don't know her at all. But she's been part of our downtown location for a number of years now. When she first came to the church, she was involved in my community group. So Allison is very near and dear uh, to my wife and I's heart. Uh, But she has been a part of our global ministry. She has been a part of campus fellowship. And as she is getting ready to head out overseas, she gave us three specific categories that we could be praying for her in. And we'll have those bullet points on the screen as we take a few minutes here and pray. But specifically, she asked that we would pray for her, um, number one, with travels. She's got a really long trip ahead of her, uh, more than 24 hours of of travel ahead of her. And so be praying for smooth travels. Uh, Number two, be praying for relationships with locals. Uh, She she desires to very quickly get immersed in the culture, build friendships that will um, be very influential over the next few years. So be praying for her to make friends quickly. And then number three, wisdom in housing. Uh, she's going to be, when she lands, she'll be in Airbnb for uh, the foreseeable future on her own, by herself. And she said this is the first time she's ever not had a roommate. So uh, a little bit of a unique experience to be halfway across the world living on her own. And we could be praying that that would go well. And specifically, she asked that we would pray um, that she would really appreciate the intimacy with God that it affords to be uh, on her own, but then also pray that she'd have wisdom about where to move next. And her desire would be to be uh, with living with a family in the country that she is going to. Uh, they call it a homestay, but to be able to actually be immersed in the culture and to live with a, uh, a family, a local family, would be her desire. So we can be praying for her in that. Okay, so here's what I'm asking you to do. Uh, find like 
one or two, three others that you can put your heads together with here for just a couple of minutes. Put your heads together and pray for Allison. Okay, you can be praying in these specific areas or anything else the Lord puts in your heart. Okay, and then I'll jump in and pray with all of us and we'll be on our way here. So on your marks, get set and pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray for Allison. Lord, we thank you for um, just the ways that you have impacted our church and our lives through uh, her love, faith, and servitude, God, in in the church over the last um, many years, God. We thank you for the work that you've done in her heart, God, leading her to this place of heading overseas, God. We pray for the team. We pray for, God, the uh, folks that... Lord willing, we'll hear the gospel someday soon, Lord, for the first time. And we pray that many would have tender hearts, God. Pray that their lives would be eternally and permanently changed through the power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that um, you would rescue many. Um, God, we pray for safe travels and smooth travels, God. We pray for relationships to quickly form. Lord, we pray for Allison to enjoy intimacy with you on her own. God, and, and even among their team. And Lord, we do, really do ask that she be able to uh, move in with a family, um, God, a local family, and to impact them, God, for Christ. And um, God, we pray all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen.
All right. Well, if you've got a Bible with you or a Roman study guide, I want to encourage you to get those out. And you can turn to Romans chapter 4. And like I mentioned, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, we're going to get all the way from verses 9 through the end of Romans chapter 4. So through the end would be verse 25. And we're going to start very briefly just touching on the first few verses here in Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. Okay? And the reason we're going to move quickly through here is that there's one big idea that we need to understand from this section. Okay? It's very connected to what we have been studying together through these first couple weeks in Romans 4. And it's going to set us up for the rest of what Paul is addressing through the back half of Romans 4. And if you remember, the first two sections... so. Uh, since the new year, we have been in Romans 4 for two weeks, and these first two sections of Romans 4, they were both test cases, right? They, they were test cases of Paul's ideas or theology from the first three chapters of Romans. And the two major ideas that Paul was laying down in those first three chapters of Romans were this. Number one, everyone is guilty before God because of sin. So we understand the God of the universe, the God who created us. He is a judge. He is a righteous judge who we will have to stand before. And Paul has made the case, hey, before you meet him, you should understand that you are guilty before him because of your sin. And then second, if you want to be righteous before him, have right standing before him. Well, then the only way to have that right standing or righteousness before God is through faith in Christ. It's the message of the gospel. Paul has laid down the message of the gospel through those two major ideas in Romans 1 through 3. And then he proves them through the scriptures, through the life of Abraham in verses 1 through 5 in Romans 4. And through the life of David in verses 6 through 8. And now we arrive here at verse 9 and in 9 through 12, Paul circles back to Abraham. And what he wants to do is just further prove one kind of final aspect or angle of the truth that he's been laying down for the first couple chapters of Romans. It's not really something new, but it's something that Paul wants to make sure is abundantly clear in the gospel through the life of Abraham. And it's going to be the answer to a question it's the question that he poses in Romans 4, verse 9. It's where he starts. Is this blessing, Paul says. This blessing, meaning the righteousness that we have through faith in Christ, or the salvation that we have through faith in Christ, is this blessing only for the circumcised, meaning the Jew? Or is it for the uncircumcised, meaning everybody else? The question Paul's addressing is the gospel. Here's what he's really saying. Is the gospel for a subset of people, some particular subset, circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile? Is it just for one subset or is the gospel really for everyone in the world? Does everyone everywhere need to believe in Christ to be saved? And this is Paul's answer through the life of Abraham. He says, for we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way was it credited? While he was circumcised. So while he was part of this particular subset of people or while he was uncircumcised. It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. 
And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. So Paul's conclusion is this. This was to make Abraham the father of all who believe but are not circumcised. So he's father of the uncircumcised, meaning faith, righteousness through faith. It's for the uncircumcised. Who are not only or so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised. He also became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father, Abraham, that he had while he was still uncircumcised. He's the father of them, too. What is Paul saying here? What is the big idea? He's saying That Christianity, the message of the gospel, it is universally and objectively true. Paul, he's making the case through the life of Abraham that you need salvation through faith in Christ no matter who you are. No matter where you were born, no matter what culture you were raised up in, Christianity is universally and objectively and absolutely true for everyone, everywhere. And when Paul says that, this is the effect that it has. It puts the weight of the world on the idea of faith. Okay, do you see that, Paul? What he does, he says, everyone everywhere is guilty of sin before God. Everyone everywhere, if you want to be righteous before God, you actually have to believe in Jesus Christ. You must have faith in Christ because for everyone everywhere, the only way to be righteous is through faith in Christ. So all of life, heaven and hell, eternity, hangs in the balance on the basis of what? Faith in Christ. Everything hinges on faith in Christ. Paul's like, hey, like it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. It, it doesn't matter whether you go to church or not. What Paul does is he hangs everything on faith in Christ. It puts the weight of the whole world on faith in Christ. And I think for most of us, we're like, couldn't you have hung the weight of the world, heaven and hell, everything, on something a little more tangible and concrete? Like, God, could you have picked anything that feels more squishy to us than faith? I mean, faith, it's easy to talk about. It's a five-letter word, one syllable, it rolls right off the tongue. But it is extremely difficult to grasp when you say everything hangs in the balance on faith. You're like, okay, what is faith? What does it mean exactly? How do I know if I have enough of it? What if one day I wake up and I 
feel like I believe and the next day I wake up and I feel like I don't. When you really try to pin it down and get concrete and tangible about faith, could there be anything that feels more squishy to us? It's like trying to squeeze a balloon covered in vegetable oil. If you want an experiment with your kids, do it today when you get home. Faith, it can be practically challenging to understand. But it's massively important. And so as Paul hangs the way to the world, heaven and hell hang in the balance on the issue of faith. As Paul places the way to the world on faith, what he does next is he presses into the issue of faith to give us a bit of clarity about what faith actually is. That's what the rest of Romans 4 is all about. It's about faith. Okay, and so I'm going to read the rest of Romans 4 for us. Then I'm going to give us a very brief outline, and then we're going to jump right into it because we've got a long way to go. Okay, Romans 4, starting in verse 13, says this, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world, it was not through the law, but it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. Gospel truth, we've already covered that. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith would be made empty and the promise is canceled. For the law produces wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. But this is why the promise is by faith. So that it may be according to grace. To guarantee it to all of the descendants. And not only to those who are of the law, but those who are also of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all in God's sight. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old. And also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in the faith. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but he was strengthened in faith and he gave glory to God. Because he was fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Therefore it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us. Who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses. And raised for our justification. This is Paul writing about faith. And as he does so. There are two questions that Paul deals with. That we're going to cover today. Number one. This is our outline. Why is salvation by faith? Question number one Paul addresses. Why is salvation by faith? Like why is it that the whole way to the world. Sits on faith. And number two, what does saving faith look like? I'm going to go ahead and assume that if you're here this morning, you are either in Christ through faith or you desire on some level, in some way, shape, or form, to be in Christ through faith. Or at the very least, you want to understand it. And today I think we have a great opportunity to see and to understand and to press into what does saving faith actually look like? 
What is this thing that Christians talk about? Of faith in Christ. So number one, why is salvation by faith? Before we get into the practicals of what it is, Paul, he wants us to understand why God chose faith as the means of salvation in the first place. Okay, so we need to understand God chose. This isn't just Paul like coming up with the idea of putting all of the way to the world on faith. God chose the one means of salvation to be faith in Christ. And Paul is going to help us to understand why. And he gives us three reasons in verse 16. Number one, so that it may be according to grace. Why is salvation by faith? It's so that it may be according to grace. And I want to say this even more plainly. It's so that salvation is something you have to receive as a gift from God. It is not something you can earn. God has chosen to make salvation a gift you have to receive, not something that you can earn or work for or deserve. And here's why that's a good thing. If God had made salvation anything other than a gift that you receive, there would be no way that anyone would be saved. It would be impossible for you to live up to the standard required. See, the world sees Christianity and the Bible as exclusive and narrow-minded. How can you say there's only one way? You're saying everybody, everyone in the world, regardless of where they're born, culture, worldview, all of that, everybody has to believe in Jesus that is so narrow and narrow-minded. But God says, no, 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 you don't understand. Apart from that one way, there are zero ways to have eternal life. If salvation had been by any other means, if you had to earn it by some other mechanism, you and I would all fail and so would everybody else. We would all die and go to hell. I want you to imagine for a second that you are trapped in a collapsed mine hundreds of feet below the earth. Okay, Now this is not that hard to imagine because I feel like it happens like every six months or so. It, It comes up in the news. You're trapped in a mine hundreds of feet below the ground. Okay, It's pitch black in there. No way out. You know that you're going to die. You have no possible escape. And then all of a sudden, this big drill bit bursts through. And it pulls back out and light floods in. And then a rescuer comes descending down. And grabs you. And pulls you back out. Do you know what nobody is saying? That is so exclusive. And narrow minded. There should be more ways out. 
Nobody's saying, like, that way is so narrow. That's unfair. Nobody says that. Because they realize there was no way out. And somebody made a way. Somebody rescued us when we were helpless. That's what God has done. There were no ways out until Christ made a way. Yes, it's narrow. But praise God that it exists. Praise God that he came to rescue us. To save us in our helpless estate. We were trapped in our sin. And under the wrath of God that our sin had earned. But God gave salvation as a gift of his grace. He came and rescued us when we were hopeless. Salvation is by faith that it may be according to God's grace. Second, so that it may be guaranteed. Paul says, this is why the promise is by faith. So it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all of the descendants. Paul, he says that God has made salvation by faith so that he can promise it and deliver on his promise. So there's no way that we can blow it and lose it. Because it's not according to our work, it's according to his. It's according to God's work. Salvation is God's work and not ours. And as such, he can promise it and he can guarantee it. If it was according to our works, then God could not possibly guarantee it. It would not be a promise. It would be empty false hope. See, if you, if you could lose your salvation, every single one of us would lose it. Sometimes we wrestle with the theological question, can we lose our salvation? I'll just tell you, theologically, it's clear. No, you can't. However, it's even, I think in some ways, even more clear if you just do the thought exercise. If you could lose it, which, who among us would not lose it? It is a work of God so that God may promise it and come good on his promise. Guarantee it. Salvation does not depend on our work or our morality. It is according to faith. You are held in salvation. Another way to say it is this. You are held in salvation by the power of God's own spirit who he has permanently sealed you with at the moment he saved you through faith in Christ. That's why the promise is by faith. To guarantee it. And third, so that it may be global or for all. It is by faith God has chosen faith so that it may go to everyone, everywhere. Without restriction. Romans 4 says this. This is why the promise is by faith. So that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all of the descendants. And not only to those who are of the law. It's not isolated to Israel. But also to all of those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all in God's sight. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. It is for the whole world. The reason salvation is by faith is so that it can go Everywhere to everyone. If it was by any other means, it couldn't go to everyone everywhere. Think about it. If it was by circumcision, sorry ladies, you're out. If it was by meeting with God at the temple at some physical place, well, guess what? It's destroyed. Tough break. You're all dead. 
But that's not what salvation comes through. Salvation, it comes through the message of Jesus Christ. And it is a message that God is at work to proclaim in all of the world. To everyone, everywhere, through his people. That everyone, everywhere may experience life and forgiveness and salvation in Christ. You see, again, the the world says, how bigoted, how closed-minded, how narrow-minded is Christianity, is the, the, the Bible. But God says, no, the very heart of the gospel is God's, at the very heart of the gospel is God's desire to see the whole world saved through Christ. To see everyone, everywhere, have life and forgiveness in Him. It's why He has chosen faith as the means of salvation. It cannot be stopped. There are no barriers that can contain the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is being proclaimed to all of the world. And it cannot be stopped. Salvation comes through faith that it may be by grace, that it may be guaranteed, and that it may be global, going to everyone, everywhere. And from that foundation of why God has chosen faith, Paul, he presses in to the what. What does it look like? What, what does this saving faith, this faith in Christ that produces salvation in a human soul, what does it actually look like? What does it feel like? And what is it rooted in? What does saving faith actually look like? Again, we said at the beginning, faith, it's squishy, hard to define, easy to talk about. But salvation depends on it. So what does it look like? And that's what Paul is going to help us to see through the life of Abraham next. But before we jump into that, I want to address something very important as we talk about faith. Okay, I, I don't want us to continue to talk about faith without first stepping back a little bit and getting our eyes on just the big picture concept of faith. Okay, I, I did not grow up in the church. I spent 20 years of my life having literally zero interaction with God, Christians, the Bible, or any of it. So the concept of faith was particularly challenging for me, I think, to grasp. But there is a big picture idea of faith that is so helpful for us to understand before we go further and talk about biblical faith or saving faith. But here's the big picture concept of faith. Your whole life actually operates on faith. It does. All day, every day, your whole life, it operates on faith. I don't mean your spiritual life. I don't mean something mystical. I don't mean in a spiritual sense. I don't mean in a religious sense or in a biblical sense. I mean that literally every area of your life, everything that you do, it all operates on the principle of faith. Every relationship that you have functions on faith. Faith, in one sense, it I know that outside of the Christian context, we don't talk about it like this. But it really is the most common concept in all of human life in some ways. Because all we're trying to say is this. When we talk about faith, here's what we're trying to say. How we live depends on what we take for granted to be true. How you live 
what you do, what you feel, what you think, how you live, it depends on the things that you are currently taking for granted as true. When we talk about the life of faith, in a very broad and general sense, not in a religious sense, not in a spiritual sense, all we're saying is that we're just describing reality. We are saying, what does it mean that you operate on faith? It means that the way you live is a reflection of what you take for granted to be true all the time. It's not a question of do you have faith, okay? If we take it out of the spiritual context, out of the context of, of like faith in Christ, just saying in general, do you have faith? Everyone has faith because all of life operates on faith. You, you can't help it. it. That's how life works. You live as a reflection of what you take for granted to be true in every area of life. For example, okay, let's just walk through a few examples. We'll see how this plays out. Um, why did you wake up this morning and put coffee in your stomach? For most of us. Uh, because you took for granted it was not poison. You took for granted that it wasn't spoiled. You took for granted that it wasn't just ground up turds that, that looked like coffee beans. And I watched upstairs. Nobody even investigated the coffee to see whether or not it was poison or ground up turds. You operated on faith. You functioned in ways that simply reflect, like it's a very simple thing. Again, we're not trying to hyper-spiritualize this. Just all of your life, it, you operate on what you take for granted to be true. Okay, you Take for granted that coffee's going to come out. And then we put it into, it's like, do you realize how consequential it is when you put something into your stomach? That's a big deal. And we just take it for granted. Why? Life operates on faith. It operates on the things that we believe and assume to be true. You all went out to your car this morning, depending on how old it is, you actually took a real piece of metal and you put it into another piece of metal that's connected to a battery and you turn the key to turn it on. And none of you stop to investigate, like, is this going to electrocute me? Is this rigged to a bomb? Has somebody gone in here and wired this to some explosive device? You, you took for granted that your car would start and that it would start moving and get you to where you need to go. And if you drove very far at all, you probably ran into a green light this morning. Hope, hopefully you did. How many of you stopped to investigate the intersection to see, is anybody else coming through the other way? I'm assuming none of you. You drove right on through. You saw that green light, you drove right on through. It's based on the assumption, it's based on what you take for granted to be true, that there is a corresponding red light that other people are going to see and stop and wait for. All of life operates on faith. Relationships operate on faith. Like if you're married, okay? Did, did any of you put a tracking beacon on your wife's car this morning? Okay, if you did... <laughs> Please come talk to me afterwards. Um, we'll get you into some marital counseling. But why not? Why did you not put a tracking device on your wife's vehicle? Because you took for granted 
like wherever she goes, she's going there as my wife with love for me. Like she has a need to go wherever she's going. Uh, Our relationships, they function on the basis of faith. And when we talk about faith, whether it's saving faith or faith in your spouse or your car or your coffee, okay, what we are talking about are the things that we take for granted to be true that inherently shape the way that we live. All day, our lives operate on faith. They do. So what that means is faith itself is not all that squishy. Okay? Faith is not all that squishy. All, again, all we're saying is, what are the things you take for granted to be true? Or what are the things that you actually believe to be true, which then shape the way that you act, operate, live, think, feel? Faith is not what's squishy. What gets squishy is when we put faith into the arena of salvation. When we put faith into the arena of Christianity, Or in Christ. When we put it into the arena of something that produces salvation in the human soul. That's when it gets squishy. But I want us to understand. Saving faith is not categorically. Or inherently really any different than any other kind of faith. Saving faith. It's not more mystical than the faith that enabled you to drink a cup of coffee this morning. It's not any stronger than that. Like saving faith, it's not like, oh man, but like I I believe it way. No, like you either believed it was coffee in your cup or you didn't. Saving faith is not just magically stronger than any other faith. It's also not any more ambiguous. I mean, when we talk about things, I think we do understand there are things that you believe and you believe it or you don't. The only difference between saving faith and the faith that led you to drink a cup of coffee this morning is the content. It's what you believe. The difference is the content. Saving faith is saving because of the content Of what you are taking for granted to be true. And we don't say taking for granted to cheapen it or to lighten it. We say no. It's what you actually simply believe to be true. Saving faith is saving because of the content. And that's what Paul shows us through the life of Abraham. He points out three characteristics of the content of Abraham's faith. And we are going to race through these. But I think it's going to be very helpful for us to understand. This is the content that shapes the way we live. That produces salvation in a human soul. Number one, saving faith is rooted in what God says. Saving faith. Safe, faith that produces salvation in a human soul. Is rooted in what God says. It is not believing something mystical. Saving faith, it's not speaking to a warm, fuzzy feeling that you have about the idea of God or of church or of Chris Tomlin music. Saving faith is not a matter of positive thinking. Saving faith, it's rooted 
in what God has actually communicated to human beings in his word, in the Bible. There are actual words that God has communicated to humanity in the scripture. Saving faith believes that what God says is true. We simply believe what God says is true. Romans 4 verse 18, speaking of Abraham, says he believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken by God. What did he believe or why did he believe it? Because God says so. So your descendants will be is what God told Abraham. So he believed that he would have descendants. Because God said, you will have descendants. Saving faith is faith in what God has said to be true. It is not faith that everything's going to work out great. It's not faith or belief that God's got me. See, these are not things that God said. Saving faith is faith firmly rooted in precisely what God has communicated, has said. Abraham did not believe irrationally that he would have descendants. He didn't believe it because that's what he really, really wanted deep in his gut. I hope that's what's true about life. That's what I really want for my life. He didn't believe it because he wanted it. He believed it because God said, you will have descendants. He received information, a promise from God believed it to be true second saving faith is rooted in god's ability to do what he says not only do we believe what god says is true we believe he's able to do everything he's promised so much of what god says is promises to people to his people to us And not only do we believe that his words are true, we believe he's capable to follow through on all that he has promised. Abraham, again, in 419, he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old. And he also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, but without weakening in faith. He didn't waver in unbelief at God's promise, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. That's what it says next. So saving faith. Trust in what God says is true. And trust that God is able to follow through and make good on every promise that he has made to us. And it doesn't notice. Saving faith doesn't just bury its head in the sand and ignore what is going on in life or ignore our circumstances. It simply factors into our circumstances the actual promises of God and the belief that God can, in fact, do what he has actually promised. He considered that he was like 100 years old and Sarah was barren and also really old. But he considered those realities in view of a greater reality that God had promised, I will Give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Saving faith. Again, it's not irrational. It is not mystical. 
It simply means that we take for granted or or we actually believe that God is able to do that which he's promised. And how we live naturally flows out from the things that we take for granted to be true. From the things that we believe to be true. And third, perhaps most importantly, saving faith is rooted in the person and work of Jesus. So at the very heart of it all, the chief promise that God has given us is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We believe what God says is true. See, we we have... Now, if we didn't have God's words, we'd be in rough shape. Because there'd be no starting point. Like, everything would just be floaty, ambiguous. But we do have God's words. We have his word. We believe his word to be true. We believe that what he's promised in here, he's able to do. And the chief promise of his word is the, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Namely, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are forgiven by God for our sin, justified, and declared to be righteous, meaning we have right standing before the judge of the universe. We are in his good grace by the work of his own son, Jesus. Romans 4.23, it was credited to him, was, it was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. And it will be credited to us. It will be given as a gift of his grace to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Meaning righteousness. He was delivered up for our trespasses, meaning our sin against him. We have sinned against him. And he was raised or resurrected for our justification. That that we could be forgiven or pardoned of that sin. Justified before him and ultimately declared righteous. Credited as a gift of his grace. Through the work of his son. The most important content of saving faith is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It isn't mystical. Saving faith is not about warm, fuzzy feelings. It simply means this. We have taken for granted, we have actually and simply believed that our sins, they are forgiven completely. And we are justified and we are declared righteous before God because Jesus has done it. By his life, death, and resurrection. And our lives, they will naturally be shaped by that truth. We are forgiven. We are loved. We are righteous. Because God has accomplished salvation through the person and work of Christ. That is what we believe. Through the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. By his death on the cross where he received all of the wrath of God. By his resurrection from the grave. He has conquered death. 
And God has sent his spirit into our hearts to seal us in salvation, to pour out his love into us, and he will come back again to deliver us ultimately to himself. And he is able to do all that he has promised. Saving faith is saving because of the content of what we simply and actually and genuinely believe to be true. And what we believe to be true is that every word of God is true. He is able to do all that he has promised. And he has done it through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. When we believe that to be true, you cannot help but be shaped by the truth of Christ. Life always operates on faith. It does. It's not an issue of whether you have faith or not. It's an issue of the content of your faith. What do you believe? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gift of salvation through faith in Christ. Thank you that it is by faith and no other means, Lord. If it were any other means, we would be hopeless, Lord. But you have come, you have broken through. You have come down and rescued us and ransomed us and brought us back to yourself, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that that's actually true. That has happened in real life. May we be people who operate on faith in Christ. The promises of your word, God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, at this time we're going to take a couple of minutes here in communion. And this is an opportunity for us to rejoice in the salvation that we have and to fellowship with God and with one another. Uh, If you are a believer in Christ, this time is for you uh, to take those elements and consume them. And as we do that, God, he is at work in our hearts, okay, to stir our hearts in the truth of the gospel. The elements uh, represent the body of Christ broken for us. That's the bread. The cup represents his blood poured out for us. And those elements are in the seat in front of you. You can go ahead and take those. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, I want you to know we're praying for you. We desire for you to join us at the Lord's table someday. But that day is not today. If you are not yet in Christ, you need to abstain from the elements. Uh, But I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in and, and worship together through communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for Christ. Thank you that salvation is a gift that you have earned for us, and you give freely to us, God. Thank you that it comes through the blood and the body of Christ. And we pray that this time of fellowship would be a joy, Lord, something that knits our hearts together uh, with one another and with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.